that would be some of it. Okay, Proverbs chapter number 20. Proverbs chapter 20, starting a brand new chapter tonight. Verse number one, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. I jotted down in the margin of my Bible a couple of verses way back in Leviticus that, uh, that relate to this, Leviticus chapter 10, verse number 9. And I mention this because, I, you know, I want to take you way back in the history of Israel to show you that uh, uh, this is something that had been established many long years before the Psalms was written. And it says in verse 9, do not drink wine nor strong drink. Do not. I mean, that's pretty emphatic, right? Just don't do it. Do not, he says. Thou nor thy sons with thee, when ye go into the uh, tabernacle of the congregation, lest ye die, it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations, that's in the plural, that ye, uh, and that ye may put difference between holy and unholy, between unclean and clean. When we get to chapter 23, we're going to be talking about this subject more extensively. Uh, and when we do, it would be good for us to reflect back on what we're talking about tonight. And, and I feel certain that I'll, I'll read this verse again. Uh, but here in this verse, and I just want to call your attention basically to three things because it deals with the fact that alcoholic beverages are destructive. And, and notice what he said. We'll just take each phrase separately. Wine is a mocker. And that the word mocker means a scorner. That's somebody that would scoff at the truth. I was uh, this afternoon sitting and writing an article and talk about all of the all of the confusion and the conflict in the world today. And you know the really the solution for all of these problems is, is very simple. It really is. Uh, getting people to do it is the difficult part, but the solution is simple. If everybody would just accept the Word of God, the Bible as being the infallible Word of God, if they would acknowledge that and say that's the standard that everybody ought to live by, and we all come to agreement on that one fact, all of a sudden all of our differences melt away and the confusion stops and there's no conflict. I mean, you know, that's the answer. And I mention that because it's here that we find the truth. Uh, you know, the Bible says the truth will set you free, and this is where we find the truth in God's Word. But notice we're talking about someone here or something here that is a mocker. It says wine is a mocker, and so that's somebody that would, would reject reproof, someone that scoffs at the truth, somebody that would ridicule that which is holy. And keep in mind what he said back in Leviticus about putting a difference, you know, between what we would call the the, uh, the, the spiritual and, and the secular. And, you know, we like to divide life up like that. And uh, there is to be a distinction between the world and us. And so here is this warning. Uh, 
Not only does alcohol cause people to, to do that, to be a mocker, it does that to the victim. Now keep that in mind. It causes us to do that, but it's, th- it's like he's giving alcohol a voice here. That alcohol is the thing that is mocking us. So how does it do that? Well, it makes promises that it can't keep. In, in, in other words, it causes you to think one thing when in reality uh, it's, it's not that way at all. Somebody, you know, that's inebriated, they might feel like they're 10 foot tall, but they haven't grown an inch. You know, I and, and you, you, you got to be careful, about, especially when you've got kids in here and you, and you go talk about what you used to do. And uh, so I've made the mistake of making reference to it a few times, but I, you know, I try not to go into detail about things I did whenever I was, uh, when I was unsaved. But uh, every time I think about this particular thing, uh, I can remember going into a bar and they had, the, you know, at, up at the bar they got those rails there where the, you know, the bar mages come up there and get the drinks. And for for, for whatever reason, uh, I don't know whether somebody dared me or what, but I stood on my head on the bar and and challenged anybody to dare push me off of the bar. Uh, it's a wonder someone didn't. Uh, now, uh, can you imagine making a fool out of yourself like that? That's what I'm talking about. It mocks you, and 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 it it creates uh, it creates in your mind an image where you think you can whip the world, and you might be you might be so drunk that you can't even stand up. And uh, and wine is a mocker. It it would promise pleasure. It produces pain. But then notice it goes on. It says strong drink is raging. That means it's a brawler. Uh, when we think about a brawler, I think back to the, my hometown, and we had a fellow there in town that uh, dated the girl that lived across the street from me, and so I got to know him, but he was the, uh, had a reputation for being the baddest dude in town, and every week in, in the newspaper, Bud's name was mentioned. He had been in another barroom fight somewhere, uh, and, and alcohol was always involved. And, uh, you know, David, these are police officers. They can tell you how people are affected by, by alcohol. I know firsthand because uh, my grandpa, who I only saw just a couple, two or three times in my life, and never did see the other one, but uh, the one that was in the Veterans Hospital in Little Rock. And I remember going down with Mom and my uncle, and we drove all the way down to Little Rock, and I was just a little bitty fellow and brought him back home. He was going to live with us, uh, actually live, live with my uncle. And uh, within, within just uh, 24 to 48 hours, he got down and got some liquor, got drunk. Police arrested him. Uncle Glenn loaded him back up, drove him back to Little Rock. That's the last time they ever tried to bring him home. And all of his life, he'd had a problem with alcohol. I remember stories of him chasing Grandma with a butcher knife and stuff like that. Listen, alcohol is a terrible scourge upon our society. It's, it's horrible, and yet we just keep inviting it into our lives. Notice he says, the third phrase here, whosoever is deceived thereby 
is not wise. Now, let me tell you, that's true whether you are a high-ranking official. Somewhat we've got it in our mind, you know, that as long as you're not a, you know, a homeless person, a gutter bum or whatever, that that it's all right. It's dignified. After all, if you're a politician, if you're in Washington and so forth, or if you're an entertainer, you know, and everybody likes you and so forth, all, all of a sudden, why, it, it, it seems to give you a license to, uh, uh, to indulge in alcohol. But he says, whosoever, so it wouldn't make any difference. You can be a college professor. You can have the IQ of a genius. Uh, you know, you, you can make have a six-figure income. Whosoever is deceived thereby, he says, is not wise. Uh, it, it's, think about how foolish it is to be controlled by your, by your passions. I, I mean, to not be in control of, of what you do. And I know a lot of times people that are, you know, that have never had the experience, and thank God for that, but they have the idea that those people can, you know, they don't have to do what they do. They can control themselves. And the sad fact is sometimes they can't. They are out of control. And uh, their judgment is impaired. They, they do things that ordinarily they would never do. And then they end up destroying their health. They ruin their relationships with other people. They, they tarnish, if, they're, if they're a professing Christian, they tarnish their testimony. Uh, it, it's a horrible and terrible thing for someone, you know, to uh, to profess to be a Christian and turn around and as a result of, of, of a drinking problem to ruin their testimony because it doesn't just affect them. It affects the Lord's work. It affects his church. I remember years ago in Tennessee, I got in a big debate. No, it was an argument, more than a debate with one of the our eldest deacon in the church. And he was all been out of shape because of the fact that his brother, who was the town drunk, everybody knew it. I mean, you know, every town, there's somebody there that's, uh, uh, what's the guy in Mayberry, uh, the Otis? There's an Otis in every town. Well, this was the Otis of that, of that little town. And he had been that way for years and years. I'm talking about 20 years or something. And uh, I'd preached a message about uh, from from First John, I think, chapter number three, talking about the fact that you know if we've really been born again, we might fall into sin, we might commit a sin, but we do not live habitually under the power of sin. Sin will not have dominion over you. And, and he he was determined that he was going to convince me that yeah, you can be a Christian and be a drunk all of your life. But, and and he used his brother as a case in point. I know that he saved because I was there when he made a profession of faith. I know he meant it. I know he was really saved, but he's been a drunk all of his life. Uh, there's something wrong with that. But the sad thing is when somebody has membership in a church, you know, everybody that knows that person, uh, all of a sudden they sit in judgment of the whole church based on what one person does it was in that same town i remember talking to a fellow that had gone forward billy graham had held a held a uh, one of his big meetings over in jackson tennessee and uh, so uh, anyway this fellow had gone there an un unsafe person and uh, 
Billy Graham preached and his heart was stirred and he responded to the message. He walked down the aisle when he got down there. The You know, they have all these trained counselors there and the fellow that met him there was somebody this guy already knew from the bars. They were barroom drinking buddies. He had no idea about this guy. And whenever he realized what was going on, that this guy was going to lead him to the Lord, he said, I turned around and walked out of that place, and I've never been back in the church since then. Uh, you, you see, sometimes we think our sin doesn't affect anybody, you know, but us. And the reality of it is it affects a lot of people. And if we're wise, we'll not be deceived by alcohol. Uh, if we're wise, we won't ever take the first drink. I, 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 don't think, uh, I don't think anyone ever thinks about the fact that, that if I take this first drink, there's a good chance of me becoming an alcoholic. I, n- nobody ever thinks of it that way because everybody has the idea that I can quit anytime I want to. You know, well, in, in the beginning, you know, that might be true. In, in the beginning, it's real easy. I remember the first time that I ever tasted beer, and it was it was awful tasting stuff. I, I spit it out of my mouth. I couldn't figure out for the life of me why anybody would want to drink something that tastes like that. I, it, it didn't make any sense at all. But, I mean, by the time I was 14 years old, I couldn't get enough of it then. I mean, man, if I got a chance, I'd drink all of it I can as fast as I could. Didn't make any difference if hot, cold, or any, anything. I, I just loved it. And, and God delivered me from that. But like you've heard me say so many times before, the, the taste of it uh, to this very day would be, it's, Kind of like saying, well, God saved me, so I don't eat ribeye steaks anymore. Can't stand a ribeye steak. No. Even after you get saved, a ribeye, the, the taste of a ribeye doesn't change one bit. It's still good, especially that little fat around it, you know. That's really good. That doesn't change. Well, God saved me and delivered me, but God didn't take away the taste of beer from me. And uh, so, yeah, would it taste good? Why, absolutely. But, you know, I, I dare not violate the Scriptures for the sake of trying to satisfy some fleshly urge. Somebody, somebody said, well, you know, the thing to do is drink non-alcoholic beer. Uh, and, and, and certainly nobody, you couldn't condemn somebody for drinking something that's non-alcoholic, could you? I mean, how would you? It doesn't have any alcohol in it, so how, how could you? But the very fact that it is a beer and, and the very fact that it would inf- affect my testimony keeps me from doing that uh, because it's associated with that. It might lead somebody else into a, acquiring a taste for it. And so, you know, they don't want the non-alcoholic. They want the real thing. Whosoever is deceived thereby, it says, is not wise. Somebody wrote, I am the greatest criminal in history. I have killed more men than have fallen in all of the wars of the world. I have turned men into brutes. I have made millions of homes unhappy. I have changed many promising young men into hopeless parasites. I destroy the weak and weaken the strong. I make the wise man a fool, and I ensnare the innocent. I have ruined millions and shall try to ruin millions more. I am alcohol. 
why in the world would we need to say any more about it than, than that? I mean, that pretty well sums it up. But back in the 60s, the American Medical Association got the idea that we will, we will label uh, alcoholism as, uh, as a disease, and they did. So all of a sudden now, it's a disease. Really strange, though, that you know the if if it's a if it's a disease, why the government you know allows the brewers to spend enormous sums of money to promote their products. We don't do that with any other disease, do we? But but we allow it. Uh, the uh, the industry itself. Uh, has lobbied against what they call, this is their term now, not mine, sin taxes. You know, tax on liquor, why? Well, that's a sin tax. That's what's been known by, you know, for, for ages, a sin tax. Th that's the way people thought of it. They come along, though, and they say, well, it's a, it's a disease. Uh, you know, that kind of lets you off the hook. If it's a disease, I, you can't criticize somebody for having a disease. That'd be like saying, you know, that you're out of the will of God because you got cancer or something. It's a disease. And the fact of the matter is, not all doctors agree with that, by the way. They say it's a learned behavior, a, a, style, a, a style of life. But I, I don't need their assessment of the situation because I have the Word of God. Let me tell you, God does not condemn you for a disease. It's, drunkenness is beyond a disease. It is a sin in the sight of God. And uh, some, some way or another, a lot of folks have a really difficult time getting that through their, through their mind. And yet here in our society, and the tax dollars are rolling in from that and... Uh, the government profiting from that and so forth. And in spite of the fact that there are, I think, uh, 30, I believe it's 30-some thousand people that die every year in car, alcohol-related car accidents, something like that. You, you know, why, why in the world would we allow something like that to continue? And yet we, our society promotes it and celebrates it and... Uh, uh, totally ignores God's word. Now look at verse number two. The fear of the king is as the roaring of a lion. Whoso provoketh him to anger sinneth against his own soul. You know, I'm not going to try to make connections here between all of these. Brother Fred and I was talking last week as we concluded that study last week, how that, you know, those verses relate one to another. But but I want to mention that just to encourage you that as you study the Bible, and I know especially in Proverbs, sometimes it's really difficult to make a connection. And, and, and I think sometimes there's, we're not supposed to because the subject changes in Proverbs. But I think we ought to look for that connection nevertheless because a lot of times it's not necessarily obvious, but if we look deeper at it, we'll see in some way how it relates to what has just been said. Now, I mention that because we're just talking about someone that is deceived by 
by alcohol, which he says is not wise. Now notice what he does next. The fear of the king is as a roaring lion, and whoso provoketh him to anger sinneth against his own soul. Back in chapter number 19 and verse number 12, it said the king's wrath is as a roaring lion, and he says, but his favor is to the dew upon the grass. Now, Whenever you think about the king, and again, you know, we live in a day where we, you know, have a totally different kind of a government, but we're talking about the, the authorities of that day, which was invested in one man who was the king, and, uh, and the fear of the king, which ought to be a restraint uh, against offending him, right? And, and we think about the fear or the tear of the king when his anger is aroused. All right, we've been talking about how foolish it is for us to indulge in alcohol. And here we turn right around and we have another example of our foolishness in that we often do things that result in our own harm, injury, or even death. Because make no mistake about it, whenever you offended the king back in those days, it imperiled your own life. I mean, it didn't take very much for some of them to just have you taken out and executed. Well, who in the world would uh, want to intentionally, you know, just forget the king's command and just flaunt your rebellion in his face? Romans chapter 13 talks about us respecting the government, the authorities that are over us. Why? Well, because they're ordained of God. That do, listen, that doesn't mean that every person in a position of authority over you is someone that is in the will of God. But it means government as a whole. It means that from the very beginning that God has always had an order of authority. And it started, of course, in the home, the establishment of the first institution that God ordained upon the earth. And so there was that that line of authority. And we see it in the government. And, you know, I, I know I had somebody tell me several years ago I was preaching something about this, and they believed that you ought to obey the government regardless of what they said and use the illustration that a woman ought to obey her husband even if what the husband tells her to do is absolutely wrong. If he, if he insists, that, and, and this, this is what he mentioned, if he insists that she goes to the clubs with him and drinks with him, she ought to do it because the Bible tells her to obey her husband. So what's what's the answer? The Bible tells us to obey the powers that be. Well, it's better to obey God than it is to obey man. I mean, that that ought to settle it. And by the way, that's what the Bible tells us. Better to obey God than it is to obey man. Just because there is a government entity that is over you, just because there are laws that are legislated perhaps... uh, you know, against you, that even laws that would be unscriptural. You think about things related to stuff that we're going through uh, today. By the way, in in light of that, this transgender thing, the uh, uh, the attorney general in Massachusetts has stated, I think it was yesterday or the day before, that yes, this does apply to churches also. Uh, just any kind of a public meeting place if it's open to the public. And so we'll see how far they try to push that. And uh, 
on the churches, but he's saying it applies to them. So I'm telling you that, that something that here in America we need to get ready for because the government is going to come out against us and penalize us if we don't follow their dictates. But at some point, and I haven't forgot what I'm talking about, at some point we have to scotch our feet and say we're not going any further than this. We're not compromising what we believe that the Bible teaches. We're going to do what is right regardless of what penalty we incur as a result of that. But that being said, we ought not, we ought not to provoke the government to wrath either. I mean, and that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about provoking the king to anger. Uh, I, I've read um, on several different sites and what have you, you know, the gun rights people, and boy, I'm on their side. I'm all for them. But you know, we can flaunt that come and take it mentality to the point that we challenge the government. I dare you, and some of them have. You know, I dare you, you know, you come on my property and you try to take my gun and there's going to be bloodshed and blah, blah, blah. And, and they're inviting disaster in their life just as the person that takes that drink of alcohol is inviting disaster in their life. In both instances, it's evidence of, of foolishness on our part to do something that is going to bring harm to us when it's, when it's needless. Verse 3. I love the way this verse starts. It is an honor for a man to cease from strife. Now you can take that back to verse number 1 if you wanted to. It's an honor for a man to cease from strife. But notice here he, he uh, makes an application. But every fool... We've been talking about things that are foolish. Every fool will be meddling. You know, people have sought honor in a lot of different ways. But this is an honor that is seldom sought or found. It's talking about, he's talking about people that are peacemakers. It's an honor for a man to cease from strife. And there are not many peacemakers in the world today. There, you know, there are a lot of troublemakers, but... But there's not a lot of peacemakers. It takes a lot of wisdom to be a peacemaker. It takes temperance to be a peacemaker. And I remember preaching a sermon one time on the most important person in the church. And uh, anyway, that was the, just the title of the sermon. And I tried to emphasize that regardless of, you know, uh, who you might put in the number one slot, the peacemaker would have to be near the top of the list because if there's contention in a church, it makes no difference how well the choir sings, it makes no difference how big the building is, how large the attendance is, or anything else. If there's strife, if there's contention in the church, we're going to defeat ourselves. And uh, we need peacemakers in the church. Every church needs peacemakers. It's a whole lot better, you know, to keep the peace than it is to try to, uh, to, to win a battle. And we, we live in a day and a time where uh, we invite controversy in our life. You know, we don't want to ignore insults, for example. Somebody insults us, and somewhere or another we think, oh, we've got to respond to that. We're obsessed with the idea of defending ourselves. 1 Corinthians chapter number 6, and we've been talking about the failure of that church. 
And in that chapter, it speaks about the fact that brothers going to law against brother. They're suing each other. Somebody, you know, somebody, uh, somebody offended me. Somebody took away my rights. Uh, somebody did something wrong to me, and I'm going to stand up for myself. I'm going to make sure that my my rights are protected. I'm going to defend myself. I'm going to get what's coming to me. I'll sue you. And Paul made this statement. He said, you ought to allow yourself to be defrauded, that is to be cheated. Let them cheat you. Let them, let them cheat you. Why? Because keeping the peace is a lot more important than it is you getting the satisfaction of knowing that you got even with that person. Uh, so we need to drop those things that we know are going to be contentious and ignore the insults. We ought to, we ought to forgive the injury that we suffer from others. And, you know, that's just the negative side of it. On the positive side, we ought to respond with kindness. Here in Romans chapter number 12, for example, where it's talking about us overcoming evil with good. Did you ever think about good being actually being a weapon, weapon that we use whenever we're engaged in a conflict with someone else? That's our weapon. The Bible says that the goodness of God leads us to repentance in other words, that's the thing that breaks down our resistance. That's the thing that causes us to respond to God's will for our life, knowing that that as undeserving as we are, that yet God is good to us, that God loves us. You know, it's not, not the threat of God's great power that if you don't love me, if you don't obey me, I'm going to cast you into a lake of fire, although that's, that'll happen, but... But that's not the main thing God uses to draw people to repentance. He uses His goodness, that He loved us and that while we were yet sinners. Think about that. Now, listen, that's the way that we are to respond to the evil around us. But notice what He says here. Every fool will be meddling. In other words... Rather than being a peacemaker, they try to they try to make everything their business, and they just rush headlong, you know, into every situation and create a controversy. They end up usually hurting themselves or others or both. Somebody always gets hurt as a result of it. Now, verse four, and we'll wrap it up. The sluggard will not plow by reason of the cold, and therefore. He shall beg in harvest and have nothing. Now, we've already studied a lot about the sluggard, and there's going to be more to come. And, you know, the question comes to my mind, why all of the attention on this fellow? I mean, listen, the, the proverb says a lot about the sluggard and many verses there. But why? Well, I think the reason is because it is a common and a serious problem. And God knows that. And so instead of giving us just one verse and forgetting it, you know, and God over and over, he just hammers away at it. You know, the biggest, and so many people supposedly are worried about poverty in America. Listen, the biggest cause of poverty in America is an unwillingness to work. 
I mean, for the most part, just about anyone can prosper in America if they're willing to work. I'm not saying that you can become a millionaire or anything like that, but my, whenever you think about prospering, at least you can provide for yourself. You can have a a warm place to sleep or a cool place to sleep and uh, food to eat uh, if you're willing to work for it. But notice the sluggard won't plow. And notice he's got a ready excuse, though, by reason of the cold. It's, it's cold out there, man. I don't want to. I don't. I don't want to get up and go out there. I'm. It's freezing this morning. I mean, it's it's below forty. If anybody hates cold weather, let me tell you, it's me. Bev can tell you. Uh, to, to me, getting cold is like torture. Really, it, it really is. I. I hate it. I, I I really do. But yet, I can remember many years ago uh, the 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 days on end that I had to work outside when it was below zero. Outside below zero, all bundled up. I mean, as much as you could be, and and uh, whenever you're doing survey work out there, you know, and stand there behind that transit, and I mean, just froze in one position and the wind blowing and I hated it but I had to do it because I had to put food on the table because I had a wife and kids at home and uh, had to put food on the table sometimes you got to do things you don't enjoy doing you got to do things that you know they're not fun and not easy but let me tell you uh, the need to put food on the table is a great motivation you let somebody get hungry enough and they'll work they really will. But they're not going to work as long as we create, you know, in our society that sense of entitlement is, oh, well, if you can't find a job. And didn't, this is the crazy thing. If you can't find a job, you know, that's okay. We'll feed you and we'll take you off of the unemployment list because you're no longer looking for a job. Does that make any sense? I mean, you're as much, isn't that the way they work that? And that way they can say, well, the unemployment rate, you know, this, this month it was down. Well, of course it's down. You know, you just started uh, feeding that many more and you take them off of the list, but they're still unemployed. We, the point is we pay a high price for not paying the price of hard work. We pay a high price for not paying the price of hard work. It was hard work that built this nation that made it what it is today. And uh, it's so very important that we, in some way, that we teach our children and that, that they grow up with that work ethic. Uh, even in public schools, I'm told that what... Uh, the kids are often told is don't waste your life doing something you don't enjoy doing. I wouldn't have worked for the first 20 years of my life. If that had been the case, I'd have went fishing. <laughs> hey, you, sometimes you've got to do things you don't enjoy doing. And, and by the way, as Christians, we ought to count it a privilege that we're able to work. That we're able to get up and get out there and do what's necessary. Well, Lord willing, next week we'll pick up in verse number five. Anyone have a comment or anything before we leave? Yes.
Absolutely right. Yeah. Don't take that first drink. All right. Anybody else? All minds clear. Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed in prayer. And uh, Carl, would you lead us in prayer tonight, please, sir?